Welcome to the Think Rural Podcast, sponsored by the Texas Social Media Research Institute and the Rural Communication Institute at Tarleton State University. Here's today's episode. What do you think is the biggest challenge uh, to overcoming the lack of mental health services in rural areas? Oh, that's a big question and one that the whole nation should try to address. That is the million dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> so I think I, you know, I think there's a lot of issues um, that we see. The stigma clearly is just really strong and prevalent. Uh, as I talk to people, you know, I give an example of for those that are urban and don't understand rural, if I were to have an office, a private practice, um, the stigma is so strong that even if I was a doctorate level, um, had books, had, you know, was well known in the area, spoke all these things regarding rural mental health, it is still very unlikely that the prominent ag producer is going to come to my, <laughs> come to my office, regardless of any, um, education that I might have. And so that's how deep the stigma is. And that plays out in so many different ways. And I think it's really important to start addressing it um, and hopefully creating some creative ways to address, yeah, address it. Yeah. And the, the other issue is, um, I think that there is work to be done with the faith community. Um, my perception is while some do do uh, accept the mental health challenges, there are others where it's still unknown and, and people go to the pastoral care often. That's, that's one of the first lines that a rural citizen goes to is their pastor or their clergy. And, and while faith is extremely important, if that is who they're coming to seek, that's an important part of why they're there. Those clergy and pastors are still not mental health professionals. And so how do we collaborate with the faith groups um, to empower rural citizens to mold together faith and mental health? Because it's my belief that cognitive behavioral therapy is not opposing, um, let's say, a Christian faith. They are, to me, they walk hand in hand and support each other. Um, and so how can we help frame that in a different way to make it less scary for a, a person? Um, and which, which models do embody the Christian aspects and which ones don't? So who help decipher what is out there that will only encourage that aspect of a person if that's important to them. Um, so that that's another one. I have a couple others, but I don't know if you have questions or not. <laughs> um, you want me to keep going? Oh, sorry. No, uh, well, and I, I think we've kind of talked about it uh, before in previous private conversations, but uh, like just in general of getting specialists in rural areas, it's so hard to convince people that have spent uh, so much money uh, to get their degrees and their expertise um, to come to rural communities and stay long-term. Um, I can remember when I was a kid and 
when we needed to go uh, after my father passed uh, to go talk to a psychologist and, and a psychiatrist, we would drive uh, to Tyler was the next mm-hmm. big, uh, city that had um, a specialist that dealt with for children because I was seven um, with mental health and children and stuff. So, and again, I think that's probably across the board in any health profession is if someone doesn't have roots in that area and isn't from that area and then went off to med school and came back, how do you get them from other universities that maybe don't have that family tie or cultural tie uh, to wanna come and stay (laughs) in the area? That is a large question, very real question. Um, my context and framework for that comes from actually my husband's work where he, we recruited family physicians out to the rural areas that did not grow up out there. Um, and um, there are creative ways of doing that. If you look up mission-focused medicine uh, or mission-focused recruitment, and Kearney County Hospital, that, that's the work that was done. And so while it was great, there were also still challenges. Um, one of the biggest ones was figuring out how to help the family, the physician families feel a part of the community. Um, and um, I'll just speak it, but fairly often what we saw was that the doctors were a commodity as opposed to a human being that is choosing to use their education there. And so um, they need community too. So the, so. Well, and then like, even if we do get them to come out, it's not just a cultural divide uh, for them understanding our culture, but us being respectful in return and realizing what a culture shock it is for them mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. And again, we're recording. So if we want to re-record this one, like, that's fine too, because my dog barked. So <laughs> I can't. Are we have a blooper reel too and let people that's right. know it's real life and these things happen. Yeah, <laughs> you're not alone. Whatever. <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, Yes, they, that's the challenge is this independent, from from my perspective, is this independent mindset and role, which serves rural very well in a ton of ways. Super important for me to make note of, like that, that really carries people very far um, and helps them in their operations and things. And when it goes too far, it can isolate other community members and have them feel lonely too. And so the best way from my perspective to bring in professionals is to recognize that this is new to them and they need cared for. They need you to invite them over to their house. Um, whether they're your doctor or not, um, they they need community just like you do. And so if we, we've got to change our mindset to see them not as just the doctor, but as a human and you know how can we support you maybe they do want to come over maybe they don't that's their choice but the offering of it and the community aspect um, is really important to retention for providers across the board yeah that's such a good point because 
realizing I'm just thinking to myself internally like how you would react how I would react like as much as you want to be seen as a person and um and you have a professional coming in that you seek guidance from but realizing that like you said they're also a person too and they have needs and at the end of the day we're all social creatures uh, you know we have the herd mentality just like most animals like we we do want that sense of community and how lonely it would be for them moving away from their family or friends um, and bringing their kids you know into a new community if they have kids and uh, really making a an effort um, on our end to reach out to them and make them feel. So I had not even thought of that perspective. <laughs> well, and you know, it's hard. There's lots of barriers there. They have, they're the doctor. They're, they've got that level of education that is, so there's, there's real barriers to that process happening and there's not just one um, yet. Based on the doctors we know that we're out in our rural community they basically just needed to be asked and they probably would have said yes. And so, um, because they're genuine people, they were, they were genuine people. That's why they wanted to come out and serve. Um, and so I think they just need to be taken care of as much as the other groups too. And so, yeah, because the, re the facts are that rural communities are unlikely to get the hometown, homegrown docked that understands rural and went to school and now come is coming back. Like that's a jackpot. That does not happen <laughs> for most communities all the time. And so <laughs> Merry Christmas, if that is what happened for your community, awesome. <laughs> most communities have to find a doctor to come into the community that's never lived there before. And so when that happens, that's especially when the community has to really step up and try to engage them. Um, whatever profession it is, it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I had not, uh, it hadn't occurred to me really to th out, think outside of just the economics of it for someone moving from an urban area to a rural area and like, hey, you might have to drive 30 minutes to get to a Walmart to get your groceries. And there's probably not a Costco kind of, kind of deal. So I was thinking from that aspect uh, of it, but that's such a such a real thing to realize they have needs too. So mm -hmm. I, I love that. Um, so what could, um, for instance, say like I do as an individual to help break the stigma surrounding uh, mental health and in rural areas? Yeah, so um, my thought is collaboration. And so maybe you aren't the PCP that is able to provide the medication script uh, or refer to mental health providers or do the um, physical element of it. But those PCPs, primary care physicians, really need the community members to be who they are in the community and help support each other. And that does happen in a rural community very well um, on certain topics, especially. And so the best way to do that is to be a good listener, um, an empathetic, safe, emotionally safe person. Uh, 
are people willing to come to you to share what's going on in their life? That's an indicator that you're emotionally safe to people. Um, and sharing your own vulnerabilities and your own story to your comfort level is important. There's, um, since this is a faith-based group, the Bible uses parables often. And, and there's even been research and data to support that the sharing of stories is impactful for people. Um, we get bombarded with information all the time. The stats aren't necessarily what's changing us. It's the interaction, the storytelling of, with each other, the vulnerability with each other, each other, and being somebody that is safe. Um, that requires empathy, that requires active listening, that requires a suspension of judgment, um, keeping what needs to be confidential confidential, encouraging referrals when needed. Um, and all of that requires one healthy person. And so it comes back to your own boundaries in my perspective. What are you doing to keep yourself healthy? Um, because for me, the boundaries is not only to protect yourself, but also to be able to give to other people. If you are healthy as a person, you can then give more to those outside of your own personal space. And so those are just ideas like the, the impact of your own vulnerability or your own story goes much farther than I think people realize. Yeah, I, and I love that because my, um, my professional job is in research compliance. So I spend a lot of time looking at data and I love statistics, but not everyone loves statistics. <laughs> like they're like, okay, that's just a number. And I love what you said. Like, I think it's so important to put a face to that statistic and mm -hmm. someone, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, again, like you said, if, you, if your comfort level is to share your own journey, because we all on probably some level have, uh, have at one point or another had uh, some mental health um, issues that, and I hate the term issues, but um, things that we needed help through or with. Um, and, and just saying like, just because this person looks happy and normal and successful doesn't mean they don't have their own internal struggles and it's okay if you do too mm -hmm. kind of deal. And then maybe that does open the door to them feeling comfortable to like discussing with you are opening up to you as a friend. Yes, I agree. Um, that face and that interaction is crucial. And so the other element is not only on the individual level, but that individual, if they want, could go, um, for example, to their church and say, hey, who are the stakeholders in the community? Who's willing to see this as a need? Start bringing together and start collaborating brainstorming some ideas. Um, one way to help would maybe be bringing mental health first aid or QPR, which are suicide training modules or, or something else. Um, Dr. Henry Cloud has a lot on churches that heal and they have, um, you just purchase this uh, training, I guess, and it comes to your church. And that if it's in the church building, People are invited from the community, come and get a training. There is some subconscious, this church is safe to us. We can come here and um, we can be real in this church. And so when, when 
that's an example of usually every rural community has a very mainstay faith group. Whether um, so we talked a, about kind of like uh, earlier um, in a previous question about like what to do if you felt like how to know if you were experiencing depression. Um, but what about if it's someone close to you, like whether that's someone living in your house or maybe just a friend or a coworker, are there any um, signs or something that we should look for if someone's struggling um, with mental health? And, and again, that's a broad spectrum from depression to PTSD. And, and so that we can make more of a concentrated effort to just be that emotional safe place or friend um, that they feel like that they can share with if they need to. Um, sure. Yeah, and all of those have different indicators. Some overlap. Um, it's hard to know if it's situational. Again, you're not there to be the diagnosis, diagnostician. You're there to be a friend. And um, the concept of friend is sometimes um, there is emotional safety of where they feel like they can share everything. And then there is the aspect of giving loving, gracious feedback. And so for, this is an example, but I was really struggling um, and I needed prescription medication for my anxiety and I was being very stubborn and there were multiple factors at play, but I didn't go. And so for, as a friend, um, one, one of them came and just spoke what she saw in my behavior. She, you know, we can't judge another person's motives but we can give them feedback on what behaviors we're seeing. And so she gave me feedback, like you're, um, it seems like you're losing weight. Are you eating enough? Cause it seems like I'm not seeing you eat very much. Um, you seem to be interacting this way with the kids a little bit more. She was just giving me some loving, hard feedback out of genuine concern. And so um, that is, a gift to somebody, uh, whether they receive it right then in the moment or not, that's okay. If you know you're sharing out of a loving place, mm -hmm. out of genuine concern, um, that's being a friend. And so, hey, you know, are you doing okay? Are you distressed? Um, and you're a scientist in Houston, Dr. Matthew Stanford shared this. And, you know, instead of saying, you seem depressed, um, just asking, are you distressed? Because that, that leaves it vague. It doesn't necessarily make somebody think that you're judging them as being depressed or bipolar, borderline, whatever. It's not a judgment. It's, it's just, you seem distressed. Can you tell me what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, and then they might open and share about, I'm, you know, I've been really feeling sad or I'm angry about this. Anger is an indicator of something else. So, you know, it seems like you're angry. Um, are you feeling vulnerable or alone in that? Uh, just asking questions and being there and then making sure that that information stays secure um, unless, you, unless you think there is some suicidal issues going on, uh, harm to self or others. That is still there even as a friend. Those take different actions. But as far as general day-to-day day, day -to -day struggles, um, 
where they're just in a slump for a little bit, those need to be kept dear to yourself. Um, those are my, some of my thoughts. Uh, yeah. And I love the importance you put on, on word choice because it is so true. Like you, if someone's already uh, feeling uh, self-conscious about opening up to it, and if we were to try to paint them into a corner, like this is what we think's going on with you, um, then I think you're right. I, and I had not read that study, but I think that's such a perfect way an opening, are, are you distressed or are you stressed or, you know, and that's an easy way to go to, like, I'm thinking in my own instance, like a, a coworker, if something's going on, like, hey, are you stressed? And then that leaves it open. Well, are you stressed about a project we've got coming up or a study or uh, something at home? And then if they want to open up and share. So I, I like that to have in the back of my mind anyway, for my own personal toolkit, like <laughs> this is a way to, to like, be a friend um, and, and open a conversation if they feel comfortable with it. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we have each person has deeply embedded in them a need to be seen, known, and heard. And so when we hear somebody, um, we don't have to solve their problems. That's not, that's not hearing. That's not what that is, just listening and letting them be a real human in process in front of you um, is incredibly valuable, so. Uh, yeah, I think that's wonderful. I, I, I love that. Um, and we, you, you talked about it, uh, just kind of briefly touched on it. Um, and again, knowing, uh, like you said, that everything, you know, can be person specific, but, um, and I remember this being a big discussion when the uh, 13 Reasons uh, show came out on Netflix and stuff, uh, but what are some warning signs that someone could look for it, that might indicate that someone they know is considering suicide? Sure, and this is one of those hard topics that um, if you're touched by it, just, it's, painful and it hurts and um, is difficult to work through. So with sensitivity, I'll, I'll address this in generalities. Um, and so one of the things that you're looking for, there's great programs out there, QPR, which is basically CPR for suicide awareness um, and mental health first aid all do an outstanding job of helping citizens um, be more astute in what they're seeing in other people around them, um, knowing where they, where their scope can begin and end. Those are all really valuable tools. Um, but what you're really looking for in, in professionals are looking for um, are what are they speaking about? What are their behaviors? And what are they feeling? Um, and what are their plans? And so, yes, somebody might, if they start talking about wanting to die or if that's what they're drawing about in their sketchbook or things like that, it's an indicator of something. It's, it's a piece of information that you take in. Um, if they are feel extreme guilt or shame um, or if they comment about being a burden to other people uh, and it's tied to some just weight over them, that's a big deal. Uh, feelings of emptiness, hopelessness, 
um, extremely sad or full of rage. It doesn't always fall on the sadness spectrum. Um, changing behavior, are they researching ways? Are they talking about it? Is there for ag producers, is there farm that once was in tip top shape? Is it now over time losing, um, is it becoming neglected? Are there cattle? How are they taking care of their cattle? Those are all indicators because that's their pride and joy. When they're healthy, that's that's who they, um, that's what they devote their life to. And so when that, when what they devote their life to changes, uh, that's an indicator. Um, are they making preparations for any dangerous behavior? Those are big signs to look out for. There's subtle signs and things to watch for. Is there a history in the family of it? Um, as a friend, maybe you know that, maybe you don't. Uh, and in particular for rural areas, um, there can be clustering. And so if one kid in the school uh, makes a severe attempt and um, or does commit suicide, there can be a, what's called clustering. And so other kids kind of like a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. um, those are things that maybe are happening outside socially, but can impact somebody that's already vulnerable. Um, are they a vulnerable population? Are they um, struggling with their sexual identity? Are they, is there a history of abuse in their family? Um, did the markets tank? And so the producers have now just been hit with something significant in their life financially, and now they can't pay. Uh, those are all big concerns that you put into the puzzle, you put into the, the issue. And, um, you know, one thing I would, I would even suggest people go look up Dr. Matthew Stanford out of Houston. And I think he's with the Hope and Healing, but he does a really good job on his videos of, and, and some of them are targeted towards church leaders. But they, um, you're not a mental health professional, but any suggestion of hurting some themselves or somebody else does require an action. Um, and one misconception that he talks about is, and I agree with, is by not asking, are you considering hurting yourself? Are you planning on killing yourself? Those direct questions to somebody, although uncomfortable for you, um, do not uh, spur on this or create this new idea. It actually does the opposite and that's supported by data. It does the opposite and it, just by talking about it, reduces the likelihood that it's going to actually happen. So that's a myth. Um, and so I encourage anyone to, that really has serious concerns, go ask them. You would rather have somebody be mad at you potentially and still be alive than not ask and we have major consequences because of that. So that's where the listening piece comes in. Um, it might be hard to hear those things, but if you can put aside your own reactions in a conversation, you can hear them and just, if they're desperate, you can understand we got to get them some help. And so um, they're, they're engaged in the conversation, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, ask questions, 
you're looking for, do they have access to the means? Um, somebody that might be feeling hopeless and, you know, you know, I, maybe I'm just being a burden. I could, if I die, they could get life insurance, mm -hmm. but if they're not being asked, or if you ask, do you plan on killing yourself? He's like, no, I've never really thought about it. I, I, do you have a plan? No, I don't know how I'd do it. I guess maybe I'd go buy something. I don't know. But if they say, yes, I have pills in my back room right here, or yes, I have a gun over there, or yes, I have this, um, that is serious and major, and you don't leave that person's side until you get them help. Um, so you're looking for access to means, plan, is there a direct plan? Has it been thought out? Um, any of those, you need to get them to help. And, and there's ways of doing that. And I, it's not probably too long for here, but um, let them know, you know, I care a lot about you. I'm going to stay with you until we can get help. Do you want to call the primary care physician? Should I call the primary for like one way or the other, they're getting called. <laughs> so let's do this. Um, but ask the questions. If you're concerned, ask the questions. It might, they might get mad at you, but they're not, if they're in that desperate of state, they're not thinking clearly and there's challenges there that, um, and Dr. Stanford talks about this, but most suicides are impulsive. Um, and it's not like they've been thinking about it for months and months and months and months. They're waiting for the last hour where that last hour was a struggle. And then they're going to act on what their plan was been. So it's catching them in that crisis moment. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, no, that absolutely does. And I think you're right. It, it's such a sensitive subject and, and, and again, not knowing people's specifics and stuff, but I think probably most people either know or closely know someone who has been affected. Um, I, I mean, I can think off of my head right now between friends and family members and schoolmates um, of knowing three people, again, all very different situations and um, that have been affected by suicide. Um, and knowing this new, well, for me anyway, new information, like if you have concerns, um, you know, asking, being direct, um, asking it. And, and yeah, you're right. If they get mad, it's better that they're mad and still alive at you um, than to not have the opportunity to continue a life on where there's, they're still here with you. So, yeah. Yeah. And I really encourage like the QPR or mental health first aid and just going to YouTube and watching Dr. Stanford's videos, they're geared more towards church, but the, the, the information can be helpful for anybody, anywhere, as you engage with people. And so um, I am not, I'm not a crisis intervention specialist. Um, and so, but those were, he demystifies, yeah, he talks about some of the myths and really the actual data behind it. Um, and if you know those things going in, it helps you know how to engage differently with some more confidence. Um, as to what would be a better approach. And, you know, it doesn't um, ever take the scenario of which it, it just feels like it comes out of the blue. Those, those scenarios happen too, and those are real. And, 
and that would be one of those that you know maybe they were feeling so much pain but because of the stigma they didn't feel like they could talk about it or something and in that moment where they were alone that impulsivity kicked in and they they acted and it happened and um those are probably the most shocking and the most not not most they're all difficult um those are hard because it just feels like it came completely out of the blue and so um it's just a hard topic in general but if it's yeah, talking about it will help in understanding how to engage in that if you see it in somebody. Well, thank you for answering that question because like you said, it is such a sensitive topic and a hard topic to, I think, for anyone to talk about and, and comprehend. 